Um, all right, so uh, welcome again to RUF. Um, if this is your first time here, we don't talk about sex all the time. Like we're not, you know, we're not like the uh, purity ministry or whatever. I don't know. If it, that was a thing like when I was younger. But, um, but we do strive to take the Bible seriously. And if we are going to try to take the Bible seriously, then we have to deal with what it says, even when what it says is uncomfortable. And so that is what we are going to attempt to do tonight. And so my plan is to uh, kick a major cultural hornet's nest and then leave for two months. So <laughs> it landed. You said it wouldn't land, but it landed. <laughs> I was going to delete it, but I wanted to see if it was going to. Anyway, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we are talking about sex and sexuality tonight. And there's, and there's simply no way that we can avoid this. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, we have to deal with it. Uh, because this passage does what the rest of the book of Leviticus does, which is answer the question of how do we, as a redeemed and yet still sinful people, live in the presence of a holy God? This is the driving question that we've considered every week. And so we come to, um, to ask that question of this passage tonight. And Leviticus 18 is an interesting passage because it mentions a lot of stuff about various forms of forbidden sex. However, for years, it seemed like we read it as if someone took a Sharpie and marked out all the verses except for verse 22. Translated verse 22 as just don't be gay and then moved on. And we've never taken the time to really address the rest of what this chapter is asking us to do. And we, 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 can't, we can't do that because verse 22, for one, is, is pretty hotly debated, right? Some people will look at this and say, um, this, is a, this is an Old Testament relic. We're no longer bound by it, uh, and we can, just, we can just get rid of that. We don't have to think about that at all. Um, other, other people, um, they just end the conversation there. Uh, it says it's, it's an abomination, and we just have to make sure that gay people understand that this is bad and gross, and let's just move, and let's not deal with it anymore, and it turns into what we kind of um, what we call a bludgeon passage. Like the, the the debate comes up, and somebody like drops this passage on them, and then you just move on as if that is the mic drop moment that ends everything. I don't think that's you don't think either one of those is a particularly fair way to deal with these verses. But the other thing is homosexuality is not the only thing that is prohibited in Leviticus eighteen, and so we need to dig deeper to see what's going on here. And before we jump into kind of the meat of what we're going to say tonight, I want to, I want to give a couple of caveats. The first, and the first one is this. If you have been on this campus for any extended period of time and you are struggling with issues of, of sexuality, be that homosexuality, same-sex attraction, be that just you know, things like, like pornography or like you're just in a relationship that you just can't, like you know you're doing things that are not good and you just can't like... I know that it is hard to struggle with sexual sin on this campus. The conversation surrounding these areas has been much, much, much less than gracious. And there's also that whole added thing of like, if I get caught, I'm going to get kicked out of school. Um, so, yeah, I'm aware of that. And, and I, didn't, I didn't mean to start doing the whole like, you know, we don't, you know, you're not so bad that you don't need God's grace. I didn't mean to start doing that tonight. I just thought, oh, we need to add that. And then I realized like, oh, this is a really good night to add that. Like wherever you are with this, like you are not so bad. You are not so impure as to have disqualified yourself from God's grace. That he wants to give it to you. He wants to make you clean and new and all of those things. And second, again, 
I don't think that Leviticus 18 is, is, is aiming at making a ruling on the entire biblical sexual ethic. God is speaking pretty directly against the pagan culture that's surrounding the Israelites. Um, but as with everything else in this book, there are things that we still glean today. There, there, there are things that still stand for us today that uh, we need to be able to ask these questions. And, and I actually want to suggest to you that these laws, when we actually take the time to understand them and think about what they're doing, you know, these laws are actually good news because they tell us things about God. They tell us things about ourselves that are really good to hear. So where do we find Jesus in the shadows of Leviticus 18? And I want to start by just kind of outlining what we call the biblical sexual ethic. And I'm going to guess that if you were here on a Christian campus, at some point in your life, you have had a really, really weird sex talk. I'm just going to assume that you have. I have, right? Like, um, and, and, and it can be a really funny thing to sit around and talk about all the, the, the horror stories that you've had when you're when your youth pastor, uh, after making comments about his like smoking hot wife, is like, hey, we're going to talk about stuff tonight, right? And it's the kind of thing that when, you, when the conversation comes up, like you feel like, uh, you feel like you're, you're sitting there in uh, Michael and Jan's condo in the dinner party episode of The Office, and the only thing that you can think to do is just, my apartment's flooded, I have to leave, right? Like, like that's the only thing that you can think to get out. We, like we've heard, we've heard sex compared to uh, weird stuff like flowers and buffet and like eating McDonald's before going to a nice steak dinner. Um, just recently, uh, I think I actually think my wife sent me this. Um, sent me the, the, the there's a meme of like this big youth group gathering, which had to be like the year 2000 of the youth pastor leading the youth group and chanting like virginity is cool, virginity is, and like and, and I, I, I like watching it. I felt so uncomfortable. I was like, I I am sitting in my living room by myself, and I would prefer to die right now. Um, I remember when, it, when, I, when I was in eighth grade, I signed a True Love Waits pledge. Um, not, because, not because I felt like I was called to waiting, but because my youth pastor was staring directly at me. And I was like, signing this is going to be a lot less awkward than not signing it. So, y'all, we've all been there, okay? We've all been there. And unfortunately, those are just the funny stories. Because there are a lot of really hurtful ones that you have too. And I know because you told me. We, we know that our churches have not been exempt from things like the Me Too movement. And I believe that those things, that handling this topic that painfully, that hurtfully, I, I, think, that, I think that pisses Jesus off more than, more than any of us. I really do. And so... And so at times, it ends up feeling like the Christian sexual ethic just kind of gets boiled down to the, uh, the sex ed scene in Mean Girls, where he's like, don't have sex because you will get pregnant and you will die. And then, and then it's like, okay, let's go do the three circles of evangelism thing or something. I don't know. But um, that's, all, that, that, that's what it always kind of ends up feeling like. And so, y'all, we have to start with this. The Bible is a very like pro-sex book. Way more so than even like the evangelical church feels like it is. Like it just is. And, and if we're going to understand the, what Leviticus 18 is driving home, we have to understand that sexuality is rooted in being image bearers of God. 
That when the Bible says we are created in the image of God, that includes sexuality. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything out of nothing. But the most important statement about God's creation of Adam is found in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that man was created in the image of God. We can't flesh out entirely what this means tonight, um, but it does mean that we were created for relationships. We were created to long for relationships. Tim Keller writes that the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity means that God is, in essence, relational. And God showed Adam this. He created Adam. He saw that Adam was alone. And then he showed Adam the entire animal kingdom. He showed him like every animal that, that existed. And, and Adam actually got to name all the animals. But at the end of it, you can't help but kind of sense Adam's disappointment of like, that's it. There's, there's nothing, there's no one else like me. And so what does God do? He puts Adam to sleep and he pulls a rib out of him and he creates Eve. And when, when Adam, like, I have to think that Adam kind of marveled at the animal kingdom as they're coming by, but when, when, when Adam sees Eve, what does he do? He erupts into song and into poetry. He says, finally, at last, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. This is what I have longed for. And so these, these longings and these desires for relationship, uh, they are, they're good. And when you feel the way that you feel about these things, like that is, that is good. And it is holy and is a part of what it means to bear the image of God. And the highest expression of that relationship, the highest uh, expression of that connection is marriage. That this is what God has given us. But we have to point out that God made sex an integral part of marriage. Because in Genesis 2, when, when, when Adam breaks into song, Moses includes this as he's writing the creation account. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here's what we gather from this. God created sexuality to bless Adam and Eve. And he designed it to be celebrated in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Um, and yes, that does include procreation, but Genesis 2 actually makes no mention of childbearing. Uh, Genesis 2 is actually talking just about the joy that they have of being together. And, and Genesis 2 also says that when Adam and Eve saw each other, they were naked and unashamed. They were secure in one another. They were fully known and fully loved. And it's only marriage that gives you that. I mean, why, like, why, why is kind of the recurring nightmare that you like kind of end up like back in high school and like you're like you forgot to wear clothes to school that day, like right? Like, we all have that deep fear of being exposed. And marriage is the thing that God gave us to to be exposed to another and yet still fully loved and accepted. We have to see that. There's, there's, there's one instance in Scripture where polygamy is explicitly endorsed, and it's this thing called Leverite marriage, uh, which is where, like, if you, um, you know, if, if, you, if your brother is married and his wife dies childless, like, you have to marry her because children were the way that you were secure and took care of in life and those kinds of things. But if you go through the rest of the Bible, every time this 
setup of one man, one woman bound in covenant for life, um, every time somebody strays from that, it goes horribly wrong. Like so badly wrong. Um, And we see this in explicit teaching and examples because um, Jesus upholds that vision of marriage. And then think about... um, Think about like even the, the, the good men in Scripture, right? Abraham, Jacob, David. David's a big one. Like David, the man after God's own heart, married like seven women, and by the end of his life, like all of his illegitimate sons wanted to kill him. Didn't work out. Wasn't good. Um, I don't know if they were illegitimate sons. I might, might have just said that one. But the point is, we see that anytime we, we break away from God's plan for this, it goes horribly. But we also see in these men that God's grace is much bigger than sinful sexuality. That God can still use us despite these things. So there's a lot to do with this, but I want you to take away a couple things. One, sex is good. It's a gift from God. It is good for you to desire relationships. It is good for you to desire sex. However, number two, as creatures created in the image of God, sexuality has boundaries that hurt us as we push against them. So, yeah. So specifically, what, what are these laws doing in Leviticus 18? Because um, it's always important to place these things in their context. The first thing we have to remember is that Israel had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Uh, there were people in the camp that God is giving uh, these laws to that had never known anything but the Egyptian way of life, the Egyptian ways of worship. And so God is saying, you're not, going, you're not going to do these things like the Egyptians anymore. This, this is not what my people are going to be known by. But the second thing we see is that the Israelites were inheriting a land that was already inhabited by tribes of people who did these unspeakable things. That, that's sort of what God is saying in, in Leviticus 18. is like, these people did these things, the land is unclean, now the land is vomiting them out, which is delightful language. Vomiting them out. Um, but they did, they did these things both in kind of their regular sexual practices, but also as they worshiped their gods. They would, they would do these things to try to gain the favor of their gods. So I want to focus on two things specifically that these laws are doing. The first thing, these laws are protecting the people. Now, you might not have necessarily picked up this, but picked up on this, but basically in, in all the elements that we just listed, People, as well as animals, were used as sex objects to obtain financial stability or favor from the gods. And so these practices, these relationships were predatory, especially in cultures where children were collateral. That's why there's, there's the whole thing about, like, don't sacrifice your kids to Moloch, right? Like, don't kill your children. Seems like it should be fairly obvious. It wasn't. But children can be taken advantage of. Widows can be taken advantage of. <laughs> Animals, all kinds of things. It, it, it was really, really dangerous for people who were, who were weak, for animals who were weak. And it's really important to point this out. Regardless of what your view of how women can serve in the church or what gender roles look like in society, Leviticus 18 is ascribing dignity and status to women and to children that they simply did not have in other cultures. That they were not to be treated as sex objects. These laws prevented them from being the indiscriminate objects of men's passions, and no one who held a position of power in the family could exploit that position for sexual gratification. Honor and dignity were supposed to be preserved in the family, and this meant sexual intimacy was reserved for marriage. That God, in giving these laws, is protecting the weakest in the nation to say, 
you will not be taken advantage of. God's also protecting the family unit. And as you, as you read through these things that, that, that Leviticus is describing, like we could go through all the specific relationships, but I, I just want to say this, like so many of us have tasted firsthand the, the damage that adultery does to a family. God's protecting the family with this. He's saying, no, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do that. And if it, those things haven't happened to us in our families, we know people that it has. This is the same thing that's happening uh, in the prohibitions on, again, as weird as it is to say, bestiality and child sacrifice. Right? The extremely vulnerable are expressly stated as off limits in a land where the cultures around Israel did not see it the same way. And actually what we know about some of these tribes in, in Canaan, and I don't want to get too graphic because this is weird, um, there were forms of bestiality that were like recommended. So, yeah, that leads us to the second thing, and that's holiness. Because remember what we've said over and over again this semester is that to be holy is to be set aside for a purpose. That Israel was set aside for the purpose of blessing the nations. And God's law was to be an example of how people, as image bearers of God, were to protect their fellow man, their fellow woman, their fellow child, by not treating them as sexual objects. It was to be a blessing to the nations by showing how marriage and family were to function rightly and safely, and how the weak and the voiceless were to be protected from the darkest places of shame uh, that being exploited bring. And unfortunately, many of us know that shame as well. And, and actually, y'all, what we know about Israel's history is just a few hundred years after this was written, they were kicked out of the land for breaking all these laws. So not a great track record there. But what does this mean for us? What are the, what are the objections to this? And what is the hope for strugglers? First thing, what can this possibly have to do with us? Well, my, my campus minister stole this from a guy named David Jones, who is also a campus minister, and this is really good. He says, we need to know that sexuality itself, whether homosexual or heterosexual, will not make you whole. And I think that's really important, and it's really profound, because we generally perceive that to not be sexually active is to be somehow less human. And maybe, you know, maybe you're doing the thing right now, where like, you know, I'm, I'm waiting, like, whatever, and great, like, cool, wait, marriage is awesome. You know, whatever, go for that. But, 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 but when you imagine like your life, it's like, if you stay single, it's like, well, like, I don't know, like that seems like that'd be like kind of lame. Like maybe I wouldn't have the full life experience. Like you don't have to be told that the movie, the 40 year old virgin is a comedy, right? (laughs) Because the, the sheer notion of someone being 40 years old with no sexual experience is inherently funny. But what, but what that's telling us is that to be sexually inactive is to be uh, a less than whole person, to be obviously unfulfilled or weird. And that's, just not, that's not just limited to like the culture. Like that's not just like the bad place out there. Um, uh, I, like back in like, oh, this is probably like 2005, there was, there was this wonderful cultural phenomenon. Uh, there was a blog called uh, Stuff White People Like. And, um, and, 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 and it, it's, it's funny. You should, you should read it. But, 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 it, but, it, but in good evangelical culture fashion, somebody made a knockoff called Stuff Christians Like. And number one on that list is hoping the rapture waits until after I've had sex. <laughs> 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 I 
Which is, again, objectively funny, right? Like, that's hilarious. Um, we live in a world where to be human is to be sexual. And those ideas have shaped us even in the church. Like, you can, you can, you can be a believer, you can hold the biblical sexual ethic and still feel this way. And so, no matter who you are, no matter what your particular set of struggles are here tonight, if you're confused about your attractions, you're exploring your sexuality, you're waiting for the best ever honeymoon sex that you've built up to somehow be comparable to the actual physical return of Christ, um, (laughs) it's going to be great, but it's also going to be awkward. Just prepare yourself. You're going to realize something. Once Once you finally get what you want, once you finally get what you want, you're going to realize that nothing will change about you. It won't make you different. It won't make you whole. Your insecurities, your fears, your doubts, everything, they will still be there. You don't become whole when you finally start to live your truth. You don't become more secure in your relationship when you finally take it to the next level. That's not how this works. Y'all listen to me. I am not against homosexuality because I think it's corroding American values or the family or whatever. I'm not against you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend because I'm trying to repress the youth of America or whatever. I'm against those things because ultimately they are harmful to you whether you realize it or not. And they're harmful because you're buying a lie that something that was never intended to make you whole is going to make you whole. So what about the objections, right? Because we all know, in fact, um, um, about this time last year, a bunch of QR codes started popping up on tables in Maples. And it was like, you scanned it, it was like, did you know that homosexuality was not in the Bible until the 1940s? It was like, oh, we disproved Christianity. I don't know, whatever. Um, Like, y'all, none of the objections are, are convincing. They're just not. This is the whole, like, you speak out against homosexuality and other forms of completely harmless sexuality, and yet I've personally witnessed you, me, myself, eating your own weight in, like, crawfish and ribs, right? Like, we've built an entire party every year around eating forbidden food in the Old Testament. Like, it's a great time. Um, remember Remember this, though. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that Christ himself has declared all foods clean. We see in Acts 10 and in Mark 7, um, God saying those laws don't apply anymore. And this shows us a a principle of biblical interpretation that, uh, again, Tim Keller sums up really well for us. Keller says, in short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. The moral law outlines God's own character, his integrity, love, and faithfulness. And so everything the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family are still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery. And the sex ethic of the Old Testament is reinstated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force for us today. The second objection. That's just the rigid Old Testament God, right? Like the Old Testament God is like, super angry and he's always like striking people down and all these kinds of things. But the new Testament, Jesus is like super chill. Like he's just like a great hang. Like we love the new Testament, Jesus, because he just wants us to be happy. And he just wants me to do with that, do whatever I want. As long as I'm not hurting anybody. Um, go read the sermon on the Mount. 
Because Jesus's law, Jesus's teaching on sexuality is actually more rigid than this. Because this doesn't say anything about your heart. That Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you so much as look at another person with lust in your heart, you've broken the law. So it's not even about your external actions. And again, you might have heard that the word homosexuality did not appear in the Bible until the 1940s. And guess what? You're right. It didn't. So what? Like, I don't want to do a deep dive into Greek like we can if you want to later. But I'll just say this. And, and, this, and this is true of more than just this particular passage. Um, proof texting is not a great way to prove your point in the Bible. Because what we do is like we, we pick out two or three verses that support our point and we just don't really engage with it. Um, but, uh, um, actually the, the key to understanding what the Bible teaches about a topic is to understand its arc throughout the whole Bible. And, and as we've already said, the entire arc of, of sexuality in scripture is that it was designed for one man, one woman in covenant marriage for life. And we can argue about that if you want to, but I mean, it's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> um, because that's what the Bible consistently teaches beginning to end. So. Where's the good news? One commentator says, These laws, which seem full of do-nots, are in reality good news because they lead to respect for women, honor between marriage partners, value being placed in relationships, protection for children, regard for boundaries, and even care for the land. They result in people reaching their potential as human beings instead of lowering themselves to be mere animals. They are the path we must tread if we are to experience life in all its fullness. In other words, y'all hear this. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than your sexual past. You are more than your thoughts that you can't seem to control. You are more than the websites that you visit when nobody's looking. You are more than the things that you said you would never do with your boyfriend or girlfriend and yet you just can't stop doing now. You are more than all of that. That's what Leviticus 18 is teaching us. We are more than the sum of our sins because um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, these verses get quoted a lot. Like this is another bludgeon passage, right? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And people stop right there. See, sexually immoral don't get in. Homosexuals don't get in. And we stop there. But the next verse, verse 11, Paul says this, and so were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And Paul offers some things here that are so important. The first thing he does is he doesn't mince words. Paul affirms what the Old Testament teaches about sexuality. He affirms what Jesus himself says about marriage. Any and all forms of sexuality outside the bonds of marriage are sin, and we cannot shy away from that. But he also doesn't place one sin over another, right? It's not like sexual sin, both the catch-all immorality and the more specific homosexuality or adultery, is somehow worse than being a drunkard or a reviler. I don't know what a reviler is. It sounds kind of cool, but like it's clearly, it's clearly bad. Um, Paul does not place this like, like one sin is like greater than the other. 
that, 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 they're, that they're catch-alls. But then Paul also shows us that all of this is covered by the blood of Christ. Everything on this list is covered by the blood of Christ. And remember, if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about the Day of Atonement. Y'all, there is no room for pretense in the forgiven life. That if you have experienced and tasted the grace of Jesus, you cannot look down your nose at another person because of these words, and so were some of you. So how can you, who deal with the bevy of other sins, look down on someone just because their struggle is different than yours? You can't. So when we begin to reckon with sexual sin against the backdrop of the cross, we see this phrase so clearly that the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe. And yet you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. And this is good news, y'all. So what do we do with this? And I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to be honest with ourselves that as Christians, as a church, like we've not handled issues of sexuality well. We haven't. And it's okay to admit it. We just have not done this well. But the second thing is consider what the Bible tells us, namely about justification. Because I think a lot of times we stop with justification, like, oh, my sins are forgiven. And I could just go about with like my forgiveness. I don't like, what do we even do with forgiven sins? I don't know. Because that just puts your balance back at zero. And it would be good if, if Jesus just forgave our sins. But justification actually tells us that he does more than that. That in Christ, our sins are forgiven, but then God, through the work of the Spirit, takes all of Christ's righteousness and wraps you in it. So regardless of what you've done, regardless of what baggage you carry, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That is how closely associated with Jesus we are. Y'all have been told recently, and in some very official ways by this school, that sexual sin will cause you to lose the respect of your friends, your family, your future spouse, your future kids, and you'll never be able to get it back. And maybe that's true. Who cares? Consider, consider what the Bible says. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. Paul also writes that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we're about to sing a song right after this. Uh, Jesus on my cross have taken and, and, and we're going to sing together. Think what spirit dwells within you. Think what father's smiles are thine. The Lord smiles on you. And if you have the smile of God, who cares about the respect of man? This is what forgiveness looks like. Third, what do we do with this? Embrace the struggle. Listen, some of y'all are wrestling with this idea, so let me, let me put this to rest here. Your salvation does not rely on your ability to stay pure. Even if we had a standard definition of whatever pure means, which we don't. By the way, when we start talking about purity, like ask them what they mean, you will get a million different answers. We don't know what it means. We throw it around all the time. Even if we had a standard definition, it just, your salvation just doesn't depend on it. Maybe you're wrestling with purity due to choices that you've made or 
unfortunately, by things that have been done to you that you never asked to have happen. Everything we've said tonight about the weight and significance of sex explains why various forms of abuse destroy us the way that they do. Because it is heavy. It is weighty. Y'all, again, remember the Day of Atonement. Remember that day when all of Israel's sins, intentional and unintentional, uh, known and unknown, were forgiven. Remember the visual that the people had of watching the priest declare their sins over this goat, and this goat runs out in the wilderness never to be seen again. Y'all, this is what you have in Christ. You are no longer defined by your sin and your shame, whether that's by your choice or by things done to you, but by Christ's death and resurrection. There is hope that is found in being a new creation. So this means, y'all, this means that you can struggle. This means that you can ask for help. Um, At the last church that I served in, uh, in our presbytery, which is like our kind of geographical grouping of churches, it's church government stuff that nobody cares about. Um, But uh, there was this guy, there was this this pastor who um, really, really, really passionate about prison ministry. And he was a a pastor in... um, Oh gosh, I forget it. It was a small town in Alabama in Bibb County, which is where the Bibb County Correctional Facility is located. Um, and, and the Bibb County Correctional Facility has a nickname of Bloody Bibb. It is one of the most violent prisons in the entire prison system in the United States. And, um, and, and my, friend had, um, my friend started a ministry in there uh, aimed at helping men who were about to get out of jail and go back out into the free world to help them transition, to find them a job, to, um, to, help, to help them find a church, like, like to, to figure out how to transition back into life outside of prison. And he was telling us about a story, a story about a man who had been in jail for, um, for drug use, uh, namely heroin. And, uh, and this guy was talking to this pastor of this church, and he said, and he was telling him a story. He said, look, he said, he said, I, he said, he said my, my progression went from, you know, I would, I would, get, I would get really, really drunk, and then I would go and I would get some heroin and I would, and I would get a prostitute and then I would go and just do the things. And he said, he said, he said, my, he said, my addiction to heroin is such that if, if I so much as smell a beer, I'm going to, I'm going to start calling around and find some heroin, start calling around to find, to find a prostitute. And he said, he said, I need to know when it's four o'clock in the morning and I've got a six pack of beer. I've got my drug dealer on one line. And I've got a pimp on the other line. I need to know that I can come and sleep on your couch instead of going to do those things. And the pastor said, yeah, here's a key. And that was his church. And, you know, that's the kind of honesty that we can have in Christ with one another. Say, hey, look, like, this feels, this feels really weird to say, but, like, I'm struggling with these thoughts. I can't stop doing these things. Can you help me? Go find people that will say, yeah, here's a key. Come on in. You can come crash on my couch. You can come stay with me until this, until this passes. Yeah, because the goal is not that you'll become straight or you'll get married and have two and a half kids and a couple of golden retrievers. The the goal here is for you to develop daily patterns of confession and repentance and to be made whole in the only one who can make you whole, Jesus Christ. And y'all, we do this in the church. Go find a church that will do these things for you. Go find a church that will allow you to do these things for other people. Because the church are the redeemed and the yet still sinful people living in the presence of a holy God. And when we can start to be honest with ourselves, like we are these people, y'all, that's freedom. 
Because once you can drop that pretense, God's grace becomes just so deep and so new in so many ways that you never, never thought they could be. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, these words are heavy. Your call to take up our cross and follow you costs us much. Especially in a world, uh, Lord, unfortunately, inside and outside of your church that pushes us to do so many things. God, I pray for freedom. Pray for deliverance. I pray for, Lord, the, all the things that we struggle with. God, that we could be honest about our sin. That you would give us friends, you would give us family, you would give us churches that we can confess to. Lord, you tell us in your word that a bruised reed you will not break. And a smoldering wick you will not put out. God, we know that so many of us feel like bruised reeds. Lord, would you make us whole? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.